Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Her PhD thesis is on a vacation setting. Um, we were looking at it yesterday uh, for some reason. Um, and it's a complicated experiment. Remember I told you about condition, class conditioning experiments are complicated. Very clever, but it's very complicated. Um, so we talked about vacation setting, we talked about form uh, about the different kinds of uh, associations, etc. Um, now there are constraints on Pavlovian conditioning. Um, constraints are, the idea here is that it's, a, it's called a biological constraint. People say, I don't really like that term because this is all bio, biological, but traditionally we say biological constraints. Um, this comes out of the work on taste diversions that was originally done by people like John Garcia, early days, mid-60s. And he was showing that it was the flavor of a new food, not any flavor. Right? Remember, it's a novel food. It's not just any flavor. So it has to be something the rat hasn't eaten before that it gets averse to. And it isn't just necessarily sickness that you can train animals to avoid food to. You can train an animal, let's say, to a flavor of water. Let's go with that. And you shock it when it drinks this certain flavor of water. It can learn to avoid that. So it isn't always just sickness. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more shortly when I get to this part here. It's too bad I didn't have things coming a little bit of time. But when we get here, I'll, I'll talk more about this. Um, originally, people thought, well, maybe it's the aftertaste. Right? Because there's no overlap in the CS and the US, is there? There's the CS, which is the flavor, the US, which is sickness. And they, what's the overlap? Well, they've eaten, and then four hours later, 24 hours later, you made them sick. Well, people were like, well, yeah, trace condition doesn't work very well. We have to have some overlap. I wonder if it's that they still have the aftertaste in their mouth. Right? It's like when you eat McDonald's for the rest of the maybe day, maybe a couple of days, you kind of have that in the back of your palate, kind of the flavor of McDonald's. There's nothing you can do about it. And you smell like McDonald's, too. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> you just do. It's nothing. Even if you ate in your car, just one hamburger. Well, just us, I guess. Um, so this is actually kind of clever. What do you do? Well, you take the rats after they're done, and you spritz their mouth out with another flavor. Peppermint. Right? A really strong peppermint flavor. And then they have <coughs> minty rat breath. Okay. That's kind of cool. And they still show completely reasonable, normal uh, taste aversion learning. Now, the thing is here, it's only certain elements of the food. Food is a compound stimulus, right? Think about it. Because it's got flavor, it's got texture, it's got smell, it's got color. Oh, that's bright. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, if that's the case, how do we test this? Well, this is really cool. Um, this was done with water. And comparing rats and pigeons, which is something I normally wouldn't think is a good idea because the common ancestor of the rat and the pigeon is quite a while back. But anyway. There's two kinds of water. There's what's called bright, noisy water. What's bright, noisy water? That's water that's given to the animal. It's, um, there's bright uh, lights and noises. 
Okay? That's what that is. And then there's water that has a sugar flavor. It's saccharine, so it's not sugar. It's sweet water. And the rats and pigeons were either shocked when they had bright, noisy water or sweet water. Or they were made sick when they had bright, noisy water or sweet water. And then you compare the bright, noisy to the sweet and see what, what they associate with bright and noisy. Pigeons, or sorry, rats associate bright and noisy with being shocked, but not with being sick. Hmm. Pigeons associate bright and noisy with being sick, not with being shocked. What? Well, think about this. Pigeons and other birds aren't really noted for their sense of taste or their sense of smell. And birds, pigeons are a great example here, have really killer visual systems. Um, especially for things close up. Pigeons are cool. Pigeons have two phobias. They have a frontal phobia and a side phobia. The side one, so they, they, think about it. Birds have eyes on the side of their head. They actually can see 360 degrees around them pretty much, right? Because they're field of view from here back to here. So that's kind of cool. So they have one phobia, which is their side phobia, and that's used for flying. Right? Then they have the frontal one, and that's used for winding up your pecs. Right? That's for pecking. They have, and it's really fine grained in that one. The, 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 the side phobia isn't nearly um, as, doesn't have nearly the acuity of the frontal phobia. What do patients pay attention to when they eat? They pay attention to color. They pay attention to shape. It's visual things. It's visual stuff. And pigeons see in color, and they see a little bit into the UV. Pigeons, yeah, pigeons see in the UV. Rats are monochromats. Rats see in black and white. Everything looks like a film noir thing from the 1940s. Nobody. Um, back when everyone talked like this. <laughs> this bright, noisy water makes me get shocked. That's a, that's a black thinking in black and white. That's not good. <laughs> Went a long way for that one that I had to explain. That's usually the mark of a bad joke. Pro tip there. Um, Rats, when they're eating, pay attention to flavor, uh, which makes a lot of sense. They're mammals, like us, and that's what we pay attention to as well. Right? Indeed, we also pay attention to color and things like that. You know, for example, I think you've heard about this stuff where if I gave you mashed potatoes that were dyed blue, you would find them unpleasant to eat, even though they, if you ate them in the dark, you'd find them just fine. There's data like that. But flavor is the key thing the rats are keen on. But when they get shot, they're keen on sounds. Well, when are rats in danger? Well, when they're getting hunted. So this is the kind of idea here, the constraints on learning. It's you have to take into account the animal's life history. Okay. So it's kind of neat. The question then that comes up is, is this special? Is it a special kind of learning? Is it what we would call an adaptive specialization. Has, to be an adaptive specialization, something has to be different than standard learning, because it's specialized. And the adaptive part means it has to actually increase the animal's fitness. And that means, for those of you that haven't done a lot of biology, um, and shame on you, that means that the animal's reproductive success is enhanced. Well, not eating poison enhances reproductive success, I think we can say that's Fine. So we might be able to say adaptive, but I mean, that's still a question. Is it special? Well, how would we say it was special? We would say it was special if the mechanism worked differently than standard classical condition. Right? Like, we would say, for example, the human language learning is a specialization because it doesn't follow the rules of classical conditioning, operant conditioning. It works differently. 
It doesn't work like any other kind of learning or memory. Right? The closest thing it works like is, is birdsong learning. You know? It's a specialization. Right? So you see the distinction? Now, the question is that is, is taste aversion learning special in some way? How's it going to. Give me some ways it's different than, opera, than standard class admission. Yeah, Dave? Because it's a, a, there would be a new response to a new. Yeah, but so is yeah, but so is so is a buzzer meat powder so, uh, salivate the buzzer. That's the right. But it's almost like an automatic. Yeah, but so is, yeah, but but so is buzzer to meat powder. Doesn't the animal doesn't have to think about it? it just happens. Jeff. I was going to say a quick acquisition. One trial would be, were you getting it back? The idea that it's one trial? No. Okay. No. Trying to give you some credit there. Uh, yeah, Janet, that's one point that's for sure, I think, in favor of the specialization. Yep. Also, the time between the CS and the US doesn't matter. Yeah. Time between CS and US. No, overlap, when we talk about trace conditioning, doesn't really even work very well. It's not the days conversions. We're always tremendous. Well, we can talk 24 hours. We're talking about eye plate conditioning. We measure that in tenths of a second. In um, taste immersions, we measure it in literally we can use a calendar. We may use a day. Other thoughts? Other ways it might be special? No, those are most of the ones I would think of, so that's good. <laughs> okay. But is it special? Is it that different? Is this somehow different than normal classical conditioning, do the regular rules not apply? That's the thing that then you have to turn on its head. Do the, the rules not apply here? Is it, in fact, simply a quantitative difference? And that's the argument um, that Andrews and Braveman made in 75. They said, look, it happens quickly. Well, what's the point of something that happened? One trial. Okay. It shows extinction, it takes more time, but it shows extinction. <coughs> it acidotes, well yeah, they, they avoid it. But if you take the, the quantities, right, so that's the number of pairings, that's the amount of time, that's the CS, the interstitial interval, CS, US interval. They're just, you're just looking there making those either bigger or smaller, you're, you're sliding things around. That's their argument. I am out on the fence about this. I don't know which side I believe. <coughs> there's part of me that says it's not special, it's a quantitative difference. And there's a part of me that says, you know, quantity can have a quality all of its own. Right? Snakes, some snakes have little leg bumps here, here. Right? You can actually see them. So is that a quantitative difference between them and other reptiles? Yeah, well, kind of, but that's absurd, isn't it? It's, it's an absurd way to think about it, but it is, in fact, a quantitative difference when you think about it, because it's they got little tiny legs. But it's an absurd example. So the, the comparative psychologist in me says it's different. The person who's also just studied hardcore animal cognition says, no, it's, it's the same. So I have a psychodynamic fight. It's like eating my meat. No, it's not. That stuff's bullshit. Um, so I think I come down to the side that it, it's special, but it comes from the same place. So in other words, I'm sitting on the fence. It comes from the same system. And it's using the same, as we would say in evolutionary psychology, the same modules, but it's responding to the inputs very quickly so that the, the parameters change. And, and you get it very little overlap or not under 24 hour ISI or something like that. So, yeah, I think quantity is a quantitative difference, technically, yes, but quantity is a quality all of its own, which is a quote from. Uh, Marshal Zhukov of the Soviet Army after World War II. When Eisenhower was explaining to him how they cleared mines on the Allied side of these mine uh, 
detecting devices. They send combat engineers, and you know, you've seen these on TV, right? The guys are hunting mines, and it looks like a really good metal detector. And they find one, and they dig it out, and carefully take it out. So Eisenhower's explaining this to Zhukov. This is probably not real, it's a popular story. And Zhukov says, we take a battalion of third line troops running through minefield. In other words, we had so many guys. You take the third line troops, just run through, same results in the end. And then let's watch YouTube videos. No, that was Ishpan. Okay. A friend of mine and I we've been threatening to write a book for 20 years, and I want to have that Zhukov quote in it. That's why I was watching. Sorry. So questions about that? I mean, it's, it's an open debate. I mean, I think that now people become to a more nuanced position, like the one that I have. Um, and I was, it wasn't my idea to have that position. I mean, it's, it's not just me. Um, but the idea that quantity and quality, at that point, quantity has a quality of its own. Um, the form of the condition response. The CR is often like the UR, right? So you salivate, you salivate. It's almost always weaker. So you don't salivate as much as you do when I give you a meat powder, but you still salivate. Okay? Uh, sometimes, though, it's actually in the opposite direction. Sometimes it's actually exactly opposite. Uh, sort of direction of what the UR is doing. And this is how a lot of drum tolerance builds up. We call these compensatory condition responses. They are compensating for the unconditioned response, which would be a whole bunch of X, Y, or Z. Right? Uh, this was first found with opiates, so uh, morphine, codeine. Right? But it's true in alcohol, it's true in uh, nicotine, it's true in caffeine. Many, many, many drugs work this way. <coughs> that they show, now it's interesting because drugs will show both compensatory and um, also weak CRs in the right direction. So you can drink more the more you learn to drink. Less, so you see, you need to drink more, you know. But and that's a condition response. However, you will seem to be, you'll feel more drunk if you're in a bar or with other drinking people than you will if you're drinking on your own, which is sad. But as Homer Simpson said, as I said before, the Lord counts as a person. So you're not really drinking alone. So. What happens in these cases, I've talked with the shooting gallery effect with heroin users, where wherever they shoot up actually is a CS, they get a compensatory CR from that. Their body's ready for heroin, in essence. <coughs> the problem, of course, is when you go to a different place to shoot up, you don't know this typically because you're a junkie, so you probably don't know this. Right? Not a lot of junkies go, yeah, well, first I'm going to do a little reading on classical conditioning, then I'll still take up heroin. I want to be informed, damn it. Doesn't happen very often. So they don't know this, they then go to a different location because wherever they were getting their heroin has been, I don't know, burned down or they got busted. That's what the kids say on the street, right? They got busted. Um, they go to a different place, their body isn't ready because of the compensatory CR. They get the normal amount they would take to get a good rush, and they die. They overdose. So that's the context of the CS. What are you talking about that for? for uh, so the context itself is CS. Why does this happen, these compensatory versus uh, non compensatory CRs? Jane Stewart from Concordia has a theory. And it might depend on where the drug action is. If the drug action is in the peripheral nervous system, you get a CS in the same direction. 
if the drug action is in the central nervous system, you get a compensatory CS. This is, it's, it actually explains a lot of data. She never said why, not to my knowledge. Um, but it, it actually looks that way. So the effects of heroin that are compensatory are all PNS effects when you, when you shoot up. The CNS effects go in the same direction. Same thing happens, we, can, we know that with uh, caffeine, nicotine, etc. So it may very well be the case that she's got something. She's not said why, and that, that's fine, that I know of. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in her stuff. Should be, she's pretty damn good. It's pretty much the generally accepted explanation, let's say that. It depends on where in the nervous system the action is. Questions on that? Right. So I'm wrapping some things up. That's what we're doing with the class condition. We're wrapping stuff up. Um, the physiological basis of conditioning, you know, of course, an interesting question. Um, we know that new synapses are actually formed in classical conditioning in aplesia. So that's those uh, slugs, eh? We get new synapses formed when we classical condition. Oh, well, that actually completely follows, doesn't it? Right? New connections, okay. Just like habituation, you actually get an increase in the transmitter release in the neurons that are sensitive to the CS. So the sensory neurons that are sensitive to the CS actually release more neurotransmitter nerves, just like habituation. This is Candell's work as well. No, no process. Right? And considering classical conditioning is something that shows up in every animal, it probably works that way in us too, to a point. Right? It's not all that, but that's going to play a role. One animal could ask, what about more complicated animals like us, like rats? Alanoplegia, more complicated animals than almost any other animal you can think of. That thing's got 2,000 neurons. Well, we can make some general points here. Um, if you look at the pathways, the neural pathways for conditioned and unconditioned responses, they tend to be different. Or, you know, often they are. They tend to be. They aren't always, but they very often are. Okay? So, you know, the majority of the time, get more complicated than they the, the production of the CR is distributed. The production of the UR is not distributed, right? The production of the UR tends to be from something motor, for example. The production of the CR isn't. It tends to be distributed throughout the, 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 the brain, the nervous system. That said, different CRs do light up different brain regions. That also shouldn't surprise us. There are times when it's individual neurons or individual uh, ganglia, so like groups of cells. Okay? So, yeah, it's usually different regions. It's usually distributed, but there are times when it's individual. As you can see here, what I'm saying is there's a lot of ways it could happen and does happen. I would then conclude that we're a long way from understanding the basic neural mechanism of classical conditioning um, in general. <laughs> okay? We'll get there. People are working on it. This is where some of the more exciting work right now in conditioning is taking place, is looking at the neural basis. This is where a behavioral neuroscience is uh, the behavioral part of behavioral neuroscience. A lot of us work on this kind of stuff. And looking at transmitters, looking at protein expression, things like that. Right? People have often said, what will happen to people that study learning? Um, well, someone, even if it gets subsumed by behavioral neuroscience, someone still has to know how to design the clever behavioral aspect. So I, I don't think it's going anywhere. But it's becoming more neural, more neuroscience-based, and that's fine. I think you can see that in all of psychology just in general. I think eventually you'll put Paul Dupuis in business neuroscience. And I, think, I think we're all waiting for that day, because frankly, it's a good thing. <coughs> Again, you guys know I like Paul, right? <laughs> it's a 
joke or having fun. I kid because I love it. Questions? Oh, here we look. We just finished classical initiative. Any questions? You now have a binder full of notes. <laughs> See that, look at that little reference there? Binders full of women. And if you think that's something horrible, I just like, find out about last night's debate, okay? Binders and gentlemen. Um, let's change gears. Okay, this is the part. Remember, I said that eventually in this course I get bored? It starts now. This stuff, of course, get out of here. I will try to make it fun and exciting. I really will. I will perhaps do dance, <laughs> maybe some juggling of chainsaws, something to keep me interested. By the way, most students find this stuff more interesting than the classical conditioning. This is like usually much easier to understand than classical conditioning. I just find it boring at a level that... Just saying, okay? But you're, you'll, you'll probably find you like it more because that's what most everybody says to me. What do you like classical conditioning? And I say, because there's math. <laughs> I like that. Different here. Just to get that out of the way. Boom. That's a serious one, guy. That's Edward Thorndike. Uh, Thorndike eventually went on to become a uh, really big-time educational psychologist, um, pretty progressive for his day, after he finished grad school. Decided what he wanted to do for his PhD, you gotta understand, this is in the early 1900s, okay? So this is a long, like 1903, I think, is when he got his PhD or something like that. Long time ago. Thorndike wanted to know what animal was smartest. That is one of those big questions. It's also kind of a similar question, which we will eventually get to. But it's a big question, isn't it? I want to rank order animals on their level of smartness. That's kind of interesting. So what he does is he designs what he calls a puzzle box. Now, what's a puzzle box? Well, it's about this big. Okay, so you know, inside, you put a cat in it, you close it up and you let it die. No, no, that would be mean. You close it up, but cats don't like it. Really quite that. It's a little uncomfortable for the cat, but it's not horrible. You ever put a cat in a box? They don't like that very much. <laughs> right? Cats don't like anything. Cats suck. So, so you take the cat and put it in a box. Cats look hungry, by the way. Hungry cats, it's made of a new wave band that had in the 80s. And you put the cat in the box, you got some food outside, the cat can actually smell the food, the cat's like, you know, the cat wants to eat. Now, at this point, those of you that hate cats think this is funny, and a good idea, and let's stop the experiment here. But, we have to learn something. So what we're going to do is we're going to hook up, this is what did, all kinds of little, uh, what are called manipulanda, things that the animal can manipulate. So it's like a little lever, and a little, little um, uh, treadle, like a, a uh, sort of trap, not trap door, but like a little pedal kind of thing the animal can push, and a little chain you can pull on. Cats, you know cats, they just pull at stuff. They'll wreck stuff. They'll scratch your speakers and piss all over them. <laughs> that may just happen to me. <laughs> you know, cats, that's what they do. They're just the cats. They play with things. And one of those things is hooked up to the door. Alas, there is a door. This isn't like the Cat Hotel California where you can check it any time you like, but you can never leave. No! <laughs> Eagles references, yes. To music that came out before everyone in this room except for me was born. Um, cats playing, cats playing. Eventually, just, you know, because they're cats. Grabs it something mistakenly on her, I don't know. Door opens, cat gets food. Cat is happy. Thorndike's like, okay, let's do it again. <laughs> Puts him back in, closes it up. What he's trying to figure out here is really it's learning, right? He wants to see if over time, over time, the animal gets better at getting out of the box. 
And of course, we would all know, even without knowing anything about learning, you would say, yeah, of course they do. Yeah, of course they do. And what he did is he measured their time, time to escape. And you know, within a, within a few trials, the cats get in and out very quick. And of course, that's when you change. You, if it was the chain, now you may get the, 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 the pedal or something. <coughs> okay? So Thorndike did this, and in fact, at first he wanted to then compare cats and dogs and, I don't know, children, whatever. It was the early 1900s, probably, you know, orphan children. Um, he made that last one up. I don't think he was a bad guy. He's got that look on his face that he might be a bad guy. Kind of looks like John Cusack, doesn't he? If they ever make a movie, which they won't. He'll be holding a puzzle box over his head. Um, but so, Thorndike finds that the animals, he said, you know, the heck with this, I'm not going to study any other animals. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at, just look at the cats and puzzle boxes, because I found something here. Over time, they gradually get better. In fact, he finds a learning curve that looks a lot like the Ebbinghaus House learning curve. Responses, and they're all equally likely. Okay? You can be pulled on the chain, it can be pushed into the bar, there's all kinds of possible responses. You can kiss on the speakers, it can be anything. So the stimuli are put in front of the animal, um, the box, there are all kinds of different responses. You start out like this. This is how it's usually sort of drawn up. There's a stimulus, which is the box. And there's a whole bunch of possible responses. Response one, response two, response three, response four, and response five. Okay? I mean, you could go on forever, but let's say there's five possible things the animal can do. Now, when the animal gets rewarded for doing one of these behaviors, one of these responses, that response becomes more likely and the other responses become less likely. So every time the animal is rewarded, and that's those food when he gets out of the box, also, cats don't like being in boxes, every time it gets out, let's say that response two is the right response. Every time that happens, this gets strengthened and these become just a little bit weaker. Every single trial, the one response, the one that gets the animal out, gets the food, is strengthened, so we can then make this thicker. <coughs> and these become weaker. These guys. Eventually, these connections are gone, and that's the only connection. This is why this path go very quickly, because this is the only response that has a connection out of the signals. That seems good. That seems like it might explain things quite nicely. Thank you. Now, again, this is early days. This is back in the early part of last century. Okay, this is a long time ago. This is like pre-World War I. That's how long ago this is. Guthrie and Horton, in the 30s and 40s, used fancy technology of the day. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Used the fancy technology of the day with puzzle boxes. Um, but they also had movie cameras. Okay? They had movie cameras. And they filmed cats in puzzle boxes. Because Thorndike said, his law of effect says that gradually S and R2 in our case here, become more likely. Well, 
Definitely important work. So sure. So they film it, and they find out that the behavior the animal did just before the right thing, so just before it pulls the chain. Okay, so let's say you got your cat, and just before he pulls the, part of his behavior for getting out, and this is just dumb luck, is he turned his head to the right. Guess what he does all the time? He turns his head to the right as he pulls the little chain. They found that the very last behavior, the terminal behavior, was immediately 100% more likely. They call it this superstitious behavior. Right? When you think about superstitions, they are kind of like this, aren't they? Here, a little feeder here. There's a, there's a perch here, a perch here, and a perch back here. And the animal would peck at the screen when it saw a stimulus, and then I had to get it to move away from the screen because it had to peck at the stimulus again. And I didn't want it, I wanted to show it was memory and learning. I didn't want it to show that the animal was going to stand there and wait for the stimulus to come back. So I made him fly back to this perch. How did I do that? Well, the screen would go blank, and here, Attached to this perch on either side is a photo beam, right? So just a, a really simple setup. You can buy the parts. I think I did buy the parts at Radio Shack or the source by Circuit City. And it was called Radio Shack. So it's really simple programming. So I had the screen goes off. Birds like to perch. It's what they do. He's flying around. The screen's blank now. He eventually lands on here. The photo beam breaks and the stimulus comes on. The birds all, except for one stupid bird, <laughs> learn this very quickly. My uh, chickadees were all named after Montreal Canadiens players, and my jungles were all named after Turkers on Cheers. And this was Norm, couldn't do this properly. Yeah. Is the connection that's being made not an associative learning? Yeah, sure it's associative. Okay. Sure it's an association between an SR. So, most of them learn to stand back here. They just perch, they fly back. They're birds after all. My one jungle, Norm, would write down, the best thing, by the way, was we would send these reports to the Ministry of Fisheries and the Oceans where the health, or wildlife and farms, or the health ministry was at the time that regulated our bird catching permit, and we'd have to, like, little sort of history of each bird, like it's, you know, Norm, Cliff, Sam. Um, so this one bird did this. Instead of flying back, he, he'd run to the back of the cage. And then he'd take a jump right through here. And it's like, dude, you can fly. <laughs> Why are you so stupid? <laughs> but, you know, you look at it, it was great superstitious behavior. The first time he did it, then he made this thing come back on. He was probably walking around like an idiot. Jumped up through. Oh. Oh, I said, I have to run along the floor. <laughs> so it's exactly, in fact, what Guthrie Horton found. And I think if anybody in here has a superstition, right, you know that it's stupid. Right? I had one, I remember, in the 1993 Stanley Cup playoffs. I was still in graduate school, so I think of that. And that was the year Montreal won 10 overtime games in a row. And every overtime, because the first overtime I watched, I watched like this, sitting on a couch, leaning over, holding a pillow, <laughs> rocking back and forth like I was catatonic. <laughs> and then John Lathar scored, and everybody was happy. Well, everybody was a Canadian fan. Um, so the next 10 games, I did that, those nine games. And they won't stand the cup, so really, <laughs> really, I should be on the stand the cup. The point is, <laughs> the point is, you see these superstitions in daily life. You know there's no such thing as a lucky shirt. Right? I'm sure the guys in the basketball team all kinds of crazy superstitions that they can't talk about because it violates in that code. <laughs> right? You see hockey players with their stupid beards. 
Right? And you see the young guys that are 18, they're just called up and they try to grow beards. They have like one little hair down here. <laughs> with the Sidney Crosby mustache. Right? I'm sure if you ask them, they know that growing a beard doesn't, that they'll look down their time and they'll change luck. This is exactly what's happened with my stupid Junko and with Guthrie and Horton's cats. It's a superstition in essence. It's a nice, nice, nice learning explanation of superstition. It works once. Baseball players are probably the worst for this. There are guys that won't touch uh, a foul line when they run onto the field. There are guys that have to touch a base when they run onto the field. <coughs> You'll see guys that do the same thing to their uniform after every single swing. Say, boy, I can must have fleas. No, in fact, he's doing exactly the same set of things every time. He's probably been doing it since he was nine when he once hit a three-run triple. <laughs> right? And he's doing it down the majors. We all have these things. I listened to the same song before every test I've ever wrote in university, including my PhD one. Every single, every time I listened to the same song on my Walkman. It was a while ago. Uh, like a song uh, by U2. It's the fourth song on the, on the first side of the war album. It's right after New Day. I think. Let's look. Well, no, then we'll find out. I don't want to give incorrect information. <laughs> I've none of that. Let's see here. Why am I doing it? Well, I'm doing it. Now I've committed to it. I'm going to do it. Uh, let's see. Um, And yeah, it's fourth song. So I got three years dead. Yeah. Every city, like I said, even my three years I sat there. Thing, I think by then it was a Sony disc band. superstitious behavior, this is what Guthrie and Horton were saying, you've got, the interesting thing, the cool thing is about it, that you don't, it's not just the very last thing, that's the first thing they found, right? Cat turns his head to the right, does this, and one cat will do that, one cat will be doing this, and then doing it, whatever. Because yeah, cats have expressions in their faces <laughs> like that. I don't know. They're cats. They're, that's another thing about cats. They always have expressions in their faces. Cats don't. Okay. I really, I don't, I've had cats for years. I just, I don't want a dog. They're too much work. Sounds like I want to talk. You know, I say that'd be great. Are you going to take it out of the crap? He's like, no, he laughs at me. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, the one of the few advantages of having an autistic kid is they're painfully honest with you. Are you going to clean up its poop? Well, <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah, so that's why you're not taking a dog. Because <laughs> I'm not doing it. Can't leave dogs in your house. Like cats go away for a week. It's like, well, make sure it's got food. Dogs do that, they die. <laughs> I, want a, I want a dog. I want an elephant, like a toy, a pet elephant. About, I've said this to many of you before, but I'm going to say it again. I want science to start putting research dollars towards inventing, you know, the toy poodle? This would be the toy elephant. If it was that big, it'd be pet size. A giraffe would be except that long neck. I'd be afraid I'd break it. <laughs> you know, because you get pissed off at your cat and you just give it one of those. You know, your giraffe its neck snaps. <laughs> right? But I think elephants are both, or hippos. No, elephants. I want something. Someone breaks into my house. I want them to hear trumpeting elephants coming out. Because <laughs> at that point, they're like, okay, I'm out of here. This is really creepy. But I want science. I want someone to become a, a super rich, freakishly rich genius in this class. But eccentric, and then start paying for this. Start, I want research into this. So the terminal behavior would be perhaps the elephant raising its trunk as it's getting out of the puzzle box. There are other superstitious behaviors as well. So when you go back, it's like a chain, and there are what's called interim behaviors. These are the ones between when you put the animal in the box and when it gets that terminal behavior, which is the getting out. And they'll in fact have, and again, if you are superstitious at all about certain events, you know, playing a big game, or a test, you may find that you do all these things. And as you're doing it, you're thinking, God, I'm an idiot. 
I know this has no effect, but if I don't do it, I'm going to feel weird all day. Right? So the animal might, if it's a pigeon, might put its head under its wing and then turn around. I've, I've seen pigeons do great things. You know, cock its head one way, turn around two times, and walk towards the pecking king. You know, this pigeon is stupid. Stupid Lego. Um, so, a lot of the behavior that we have here, that we see, and this is what these guys are sort of showing, is a lot of the behavior that we see in daily life, in animals and also in us, so in non-human animals and humans, is actually superstitious behavior. Now, in the middle, there are also what are called adjunctive behaviors, and adjunctive behavior is something that deals with a biological need. It's grooming, it's, and it's basically killing time until the internal and internal behaviors kick in. So this is, this is getting some, this is eating, this is grooming, this is drinking, uh, anything like that. Okay? They're basically time killers. So those ones aren't controlled by the um, reward, the adjunct one, <laughs> but these are. And this is very little change in behavior. And you might see this with your dog or something like that when you go to feed it, you know, or go to, when it goes outside, you might find that after it goes in craps and, you know, you don't clean up because your parents do, it then will run in a circle or something like that and then come into the door. Right? You see that kind of thing. That's where it comes from. Because then it comes in and then you do this thing where you reward your dog for taking a crap on your lawn. <laughs> no. Oh, thanks. <laughs> It's not as bad, you know, parents with the new kid, the first time there. I had two kids. I never once said to my kid, oh, look, you gave me a present. And I said, you cracked your pants. <laughs> you don't talk about this. It's shit. You don't say that. You don't say, hey, go. Do that. That's bizarre. <laughs> so the kids You know, I, look, I've cleaned up after... Other kids too, maybe sitting on it, but I've never thought of it as being, oh, isn't this green? No. <laughs> Younger, oh boy. Especially when they get older and they're eating the same food you are, that's not, it just becomes actual turds, you know? <laughs> what the hell's wrong with me today? Um, <laughs> I really don't know. So these are, these adjunctive these, these behaviors aren't exactly superstitious, um, but none of these things are really random. And they looked random until you pay a little more attention. What your dog does after it poops outside and runs around a bit, you think that's crazy sort of random behavior. It's actually not. You'll find, in fact, that it'll be doing the same set of behaviors all the time. Right? It's quite neat. All right. skitter box, like an opera box. There's a little, little lever you can push, a little bar. We talked about bar pressing with CER, right? That's... So how do you get the rat to do that? Well, you train it. And you do it through what's called shaping through successive approximation. The closer the animal gets to the behavior you're interested in, uh, each time it gets closer to that behavior, you give it food. You feed it. And at first, you know, you'll start out by things like when the rat looks at the bar, you feed it. When it gets closer to the bar, you feed it. And closer, closer, eventually it pushes the bar and gets food. If you're good at this, you can do it in an hour or less. If you're no good at this, you can completely screw up a rat and no one can ever use it. 
Um, it's a, it's, it's kind of half art, half science. Like you really, there are people that are good at shaping. If you're in a lab, there are people that can do it, and then you end up being the guy that shapes everyone's animals because you can do it. A lot of what's happening here are what's called secondary reinforcers. So the feeder itself is going to make a noise, right? So in my experiment here with, the, with this box, there was a feeder here. It was like this piece of aluminum, and then so there was sunflower seeds in here, extra grand up sunflower seeds. And this was on a, a lever kind of system like that. And then there was a solenoid that operated this. So an electrical current would come through here, this would push, and that would go up. That makes a lot of noise. Ka-ching! So you actually, the first thing you have to do, actually, typically, is train the animal that that's a good sound. Because typically, it startles them. Because it's a little loud. It's like, it's pretty loud click, pretty loud noise. So first, you have to be very often in the room with the animal. And typically you don't stand there because it distracts them, right? But you make the feeder operate and you feed them. Make the feeder operate and you feed them. Eventually they realize that the feeder operating is a good sound. It's a secondary reinforcer, right? So that's good. Now, when you put them in the box and they start looking at the, at the bar, you can immediately operate the feeder, they run over to the feeder and get some food. <coughs> because they put, and that's the usually classical condition, right? The feeder and food go together. CS is the feeder, the US is the food. Right? Okay. So that's, the first thing you have to do is you actually have to train the animal. You have to train the animal to do the tasks you're interested in, bar pressing, key packing, etc. Now, one of the things you do with key packing, we talked about auto shaping. Remember how, how pigeons will just automatically peck at a key, like if you, or most birds, if you put a light up a, put up a light, and then for 10 seconds, in the last two seconds, you operate a feeder, and that's a classical condition, but for some reason, birds start pecking at those things. Well, just use that to your advantage. As soon as it pecks, feed them. So it's a lot easier with birds, because you can train them that way, especially if it's in the dark, because that's the only stimulus that's there, and they just start pecking it automatically. With, with my uh, little songbirds, it's harder because I didn't do the experiments in the dark. I did them in, in, in the light. Um, how did I get birds to peck at those things? Well, I actually took a sunflower seed and taped it to the touch screen. And the bird starts pecking at it because it sees a sunflower seed. I've already paired the sand in the feeder. They learn pretty quickly. Not all of them. Some of them, it actually took months to, to train. Most of them learn very quickly. But I think Norm, the stupid bird, <laughs> it took like a couple of months to train but unlike rats, you can't just call up somebody and order dark-eyed junkos. Right? You have to go trap them. With, what do you do with, with uh, anyone, if you want to get a, uh, a rat to get really close to a, to a, a bar, you want it to get close because that's what you want to push it, just put peanut butter all over. They run over right away, start breaking it off, the bar operates, food goes, they start getting food from pushing the bar. So there are tricks that people use. And it's funny, because there are people that are purists. I wouldn't even do it that way. Why not? Just save me two days. <clears throat> so you shape through successful approximations. Um, but as I said, this is, think about how hard this might be, because if the first time the rat looks at it, you feed it. If the second time it does the same thing, looks at it, you feed it, you don't want to train it that it's supposed to look at it from 27 meters away. You're trying to get it closer, so you can't reinforce it for just looking at it from 20. You've got to go, is he now? 19 centimeters away. It's got to get closer and closer to the behavior you're interested in. If you, you can end up, like I said, with a rat that's screwed up for everyone's research forever. Because you trained it that I, I stand there and stare down the bar, and now I get food. That's not what you want. So it takes some practice. It's not an easy thing to do. We use some of the same approaches in behavior modification. Here's a behavior modification course this term, isn't it? Is there? Is it this term or next? I'm supposed to know these things. I'm only the department chair. I don't know that. Who cares? Um, maybe it's next term. The thing is, in behavior modification, we use some of these same techniques. Right? We start by reinforcing people for 
doing a different behavior than they're normally doing, right? And eventually, you can get to the point where you're reinforcing them exceedingly rarely, right, for doing something you want them to do. Getting your kid to do homework, right? And you can you do that with secondary reinforcers. You don't, you don't throw food at them, right? Set up a system. Every time you do X, Y, or Z, I'm going to give you so many points. And we'll keep track of it. And once you get to 1,000 points, you can cash that in for a value meal at McDonald's. I know we had a system where eventually it was almost like a catalog. This isn't my doing. Isn't it? It's funny. You think I would have done this, but being a psychologist, no, Isabel did this. And it was like, she had a whole bunch of stuff. And if Maddie saved up, <laughs> she could go, go to like, oh, a whole lot of points. But eventually it was like, she did. We would go out to like a place like Lackey Wings. You know. Small amounts, oh, we have And so she can cash it in. Pretty cool. So we do that, that's just standard behavior modification techniques. So we use these techniques, we use the idea of shaping clinically all the time for very specific behaviors. I can't, if you say I have a failure, I, I can't love and I can't commit to a relationship, I can't do that with with food pellets. It takes you got to go talk to somebody else. Right? Now go ask that girl out and I'll give you a cookie. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> but with very specific things, like do this behavior, which behavior modification typically deals with that kind of thing, do this behavior, or don't do that behavior, it can work okay. They're quite well. Questions? All right, back in for today, and I shall see you guys tomorrow. Yeah, thanks. Come on, into tragedy, and I reserve the right to say I told you so. Everything to let you know Nothing is right, nothing is wrong Nothing is something too long I'm gonna point you in the right direction We could take off together Do it again Over and over and over
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.